Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better, um, again in the surrounds of the Metropole lobby, uh, hence the music in the background again. Um, and this one, definitely we're going to talk about... Uh, the person's story and every episode has a story I think nearly every guest shares their story and they talk about lessons they've taken from their career so far from certain life events and I guess how that sometimes is a a catalyst for going in a different direction and trying something different and do something new and I think we're going to definitely touch on a lot of that with Today's guest, Nicole Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rob. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> Great to have you and nice to be in person. It's always good. Nicole, you're from Cork originally. Talk to me a bit about your uh, early stages, early career, early part of your journey. Yeah, so I'm from Mill Street, um, small town in North Cork, um, rural town. Kind of everybody knows everybody. Um, went to school there, everything. Your vision was on there Eurovision once as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what we're really famous for. Um, and yeah, I was just kind of like a small town girl and didn't really, you know, I was just like anybody else, really. I had plans to go to college after I finished school. I had kind of my whole life planned out. I was madly going to be, <laughs> I suppose it's unrealistic because as little girls, you kind of think of, um, you'll be married by 25 and you'll have a house by 26 and you'll mm. have a baby by 27. <laughs> right, very well planned out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, that old Cinderella story. Um, uh, but I was going to just go to college, finish college, work, um, and I suppose start to kind of future for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose... That I was on the way of doing that. I graduated from secondary school back in 2010. I started college and I went to the National Maritime College in Cork where I studied engineering for a couple of years. Uh, I was the only girl in my class. College is fairly small, but it's a pretty much male dominant college. And I went to sea in 2015 where I was working for Irish Ferries for a couple of weeks with them. And I loved it. I loved being an engineer. I loved working with my hands, all of that kind of stuff. It was just phenomenal. Um, but I was at sea and I got a call just to say that my brother was in hospital. Okay. And I suppose that's kind of when my whole life really changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know obviously about your story for folks that mightn't be familiar with it. Hopefully yeah. you can maybe talk us through. You got that call, everything changed. Maybe just talk us through the hours and days and weeks I suppose after that it was it was bizarre I suppose because I was always I have a sibling Alex is his name and um, he's my younger brother it was about four and a half years between the two of us and uh, he was 18 at the time and I was just gone to sea and he was living in Cork City Um, he had moved away from home got a job was living in the city, making friends, you know, kind of just settling on his feet, being home. He was in college? He wasn't in college at the time, no. Um, He didn't know what he wanted to do in college. Mm -hmm. So he just decided to take the year out before deciding to go to college. Um, He kind of always wanted to be sure instead of wasting his time. Yeah. Uh, So he was living in the city and I got a call to say that Alex was in hospital. He was in CUH. 
And I was always really afraid of that happening to me while I was away, um, mm. that something would happen to him. And I was always kind of just like, you know, don't be thinking that way. You were thinking that it might happen to him or just something in general? Something was it to him. Okay. I, don't know, like, I always thought that, like, you know, that could be the worst possible scenario for right. me to be away and get a call about him. Yeah, yeah. And there it was. And it was very different to what I imagined it would be like. Mm. Uh, I got the call from my mother. Uh, I didn't know why he was in CUH. I didn't have a clue about anything. Um, but I just went down to the end room as I did every morning. I had the morning briefing with the lads. And then I kind of just sat around and said, you know, I better call her again. So she left a voicemail or did you have a chat with her? She called me. Because we were sailing overnight. Okay. So we were coming in from Ross, or from Sherbrooke to Ross Lair. So I had no reception. Right, right. So that morning, I just kind of, around seven, I got a few missed calls from her. And okay. I just thought she wanted to just chat with me. Yeah. But she called me, she said he was in CUH and she was on her way there. So she didn't know much herself. So I just kind of, I suppose I don't know, I was in shock at the beginning. And then I called her back and like she was in hysterics initially. And I thought, oh my God, something's after happening and I didn't mm. get to see him. Um, but she just said, you need to get off the ship, you need to come home. And so I did. I came home. It took me about two hours to get from Rosslayer back to Cork. And as I arrived to CH, I got there and the one o'clock news is on. Right. I still hadn't a clue now about my brother or what had happened to him. Nobody was telling me anything. Um, but all of a sudden he was on the news. Oh. And I thought it was just bizarre. I was like, why is he on the news? You and know? was his name being mentioned? Yeah, on the news his, and everything? his name, okay. his picture, his face, everything wow. was on the news. And I was like, my God, like what is happening here? Um, and I suppose I'm one of those people that also doesn't take bad news well, like mm. in an appropriate manner. So like I would turn to like humor, hysterics. I started laughing in the waiting room. Um, but like I couldn't stop as well. And everyone was just looking at me because there was other families in there as well. Yeah. Um, and then I was allowed to see my brother. Um, but the nurse had said, you know, he's in the ICU. You need to just be careful and just prepare yourself. Um, right. And I thought, you know, what's going on? Like, oh, my God. I'm going to see him and he's going to be just in such a state. Hmm. But when I was allowed to see him, he was fine. Um, except he wasn't fine. And that was the problem. Like he was hooked up to every single machine inside there. He wasn't breathing for himself. He wasn't doing anything for himself. And then the paramedic or the doctors had told us that he was found in that house up in Greenmount. Um, they had bought a synthetic drug that they assumed it was a different drug. So they thought they'd done their research, they thought they took it well, but it ended up being about 100 times the dose of what he took, what he had taken at the time. Jeez. And so when he was found, he was found on the floor and he was clutching to his chest. He had suffered a cardiac arrest and nobody else in the room hadn't even noticed that. Oh. Um, so the paramedics came in and they resuscitated him for around 10 minutes um, and then as they brought him to CUH, his organs started kind of failing and giving way. But they put him into a coma and he kind of stabilized for a bit. And so he then um, was brought out of the coma when I got there. So then it was kind of a waiting game for us. So that was just a Tuesday. And it was, there was a lot of like, it got a lot of media attention. Of course it did. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and the media picked up straight away. Was it a drug related, was it? Or how did they? Yeah, yeah. It unfolded very quickly. Right. It, everybody had known that there was a house party, there was a drug, something had gone bad, horrifically right, bad. Right. Um, and the days, I suppose, kind of went by really quickly for us because we were kind of running out of time as well. Because on the Tuesday, we got news that he was getting worse and he was going to be brain damaged. It was extensive. It was irreversible. He'd never wake up. 
So we were very limited on the choices that we had. Mm. Um, then they came back again on the Thursday and they told us that he'd have a second heart attack um, because his, he just wasn't taking any of the medication. Um, his brain was swelling up against his skull and that was the issue with my brother. And there was nothing really that they could do at that stage. Um, so on the Thursday night, he actually suffered his second heart attack and he went into just a fit, really. And we just stood there and we just watched him. You, you know. were there when that happened, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we were in there okay. with the doctors, the defibrillator, everybody was around him, but we couldn't do anything for him. It was up to him. Uh, he kind of pulled through, but... At that stage, he, he we knew he was going to die. Like he, we knew, like he, slowly, you could see on the monitor, he was his heart rate was dropping slowly. Mm. Um, and so, the doctors came in on the Friday and they told us uh, they would do stem cell tests uh, to determine if he had any brain activity. And the first one came back unresponsive, and then the second one came back unresponsive, mm. and he was just pronounced clinically brain dead on the Friday, and that was it. Oh. Just in the space of those couple of days, he was mm. just gone. Um, but we decided to make him an organ donor. Okay. And so on the Saturday then, he went into surgery and he donated four of his organs. Okay. Well, so so in the space of those, I suppose, four days, like, in, was there complete disbelief in in the first couple of days where you just thought everything was going to be okay? Or what was your sense? Did Was there just complete hope? I think um, for me, I suppose because it's only my mother, my brother and myself. So my mother was in a state of panic and shock and this is her child. And I was hopeful, but I had to be the sensible decision maker in this whole scenario. So I was being, I'm also a really big realist. Like I I tell it how it is and I see it for what it is Mm. so I knew that you know I was hopeful that I wanted him to wake up of course he's my brother but I also knew that if there was a chance that he wasn't going to we had to prepare for the worst and we had to prepare for what he could possibly do for something somebody else as well so Mm. it was it was tough it was very tough for me at the start but I think when it got worse was after the funeral, when everything's quiet, mm. then you get time to start processing what happened. Mm. That's kind of when it was the worst. Wow. Yeah, sorry. Definitely sorry to hear the story. It's, you know, try to be, I was trying to put myself in the other person's shoes when we're talking through it. So it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, definitely tough to, to kind of imagine going through that. Um, for the days, after the funeral for the weeks after what was that like it was just it was it was like you were stuck you were stuck and you could see everything else moving around you but you couldn't move anywhere and you just didn't know you didn't know anything you didn't know which way was up which way was down you didn't sleep and if you slept you just dreamt of nothing like every for the first couple of weeks every every night I went to sleep I would just pray that I just didn't wake up mm. I just didn't want to continue trying to live without him and the whole situation and I suppose everybody around you you have support but people kind of tiptoe around you a lot and you notice that like a lot you know mm. you just want a bit of normality but it's very hard for somebody to be normal around something that's so tragic and happens so 
horribly and so publicly as well. Yeah. The media, I suppose, is the hardest part because they always wanted to know or they always wanted to be there or mm. get something out of you. And you're in the midst of trying to just carry on with this and you just don't want to talk mm. about it. Um, so for me, it was really, really difficult because I was an only, only child again. And now I had to begin to restart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah, for me, it was really difficult. Tough. I interviewed Deirdre Shocknessy, I said, a couple of weeks back here, and one of the things she talked about was the media and, you know, in these sort of scenarios, how they're, how some sometimes they get a bad rap for being, showing no empathy or lack of empathy, and but others, she, she knows some that, that do. Is that, what was your experience with that? You can hint at it there. I think it was, in this case, they were very sympathetic even empathetic i would say because you know like you have like tabloids and things like that all right they'll share their stories that are exaggerated to the max Mm. but the majority were very very sympathetic to the whole situation because i think it was such a shock to not just us but to the nation because alex wasn't of a demographic that he was just a normal child Mm. and i think everybody could identify with him yeah and that was the kind of shocker for all of us. Mm. Yeah, like, you, you know, every a, a lot of kids dabble with stuff, I suppose, when they're a young age. And, you know, I don't think people would typically be making that choice thinking the worst. You don't generally think the worst is go- going to happen. Like, and, and on that note, was every, all the others, were they okay? Did anything else happen to anyone during that no, um, all six of them were admitted in the hospital on that Tuesday morning night, but five of them were discharged the following morning, but Alex okay. just never did. Right. Okay. So it's a, it's, it's a tough story, and like any of those that probably bring you to a very dark place, is there a point where you start looking at things a little bit differently or or, or looking for some sort of... Something to cling on to, to kind of move in a different play direction? I think when you when you do lose somebody so close to you, um, the way you see the world changes completely. Um, I talk about it sometimes in the blog that I write about looking through at life through like a kaleidoscope. So like everybody sees it one way, but the people who've lost somebody can see it, things differently. And things that, you know, used to matter to me just don't matter, don't have the same value anymore. Mm. And yeah, you start to think of... I suppose you can, it's either, it goes back to your basic instinct of fight or flight. So, or freeze even as well. Um, so you have a choice at the end of the day. And I just wanted to, he was known for something so negative, but like I'll always say it was his choice. It was my brother's choice. A hundred percent. He was the person that, you know, in the end made the choice to take the drug. He was also very uneducated and all these other external factors that were happening as well. And after his death, nothing really changed, you know? There was nothing that was going to change until another child was going to die. And it was mm-hmm. going to happen again. And it's going to continue happening. Yeah. So I kind of thought, you know, I wanted to, this to be a learning curve for everybody, not just me, our family or my brother. And that the education system and how we talk about drugs, how we perceive them and things like that had to change. Mm. And we have to kind of start evolving with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that, you started to, I suppose, the Alex's adventure started to emerge. Maybe talk to me about 
the the thought process around that. Sometimes I'm fascinated when you have an idea to do something, you know, and people maybe cling to it and are running a million miles an hour and maybe down the road then realise there mightn't be much thought behind it or it was just a random idea. Obviously, this has more thought behind it, um, I would I would imagine. And maybe just talk to me about the concept and how it started to evolve. And I suppose how Alex's Adventure happened was, um, to be honest, I'm not a risk taker. Like I wasn't a risk taker before this. And I, it took me about a week to decide this thought process. Uh, I spent the whole week fighting myself. A week isn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it takes me a long time to come to a, a risky decision. I tell you, longer than a week. Um, exactly. Um, the thought of Alex's adventure was, um, I suppose, it was after the funeral. And at the funeral, when I gave my eulogy about Alex, um, one of my friends and also um, my grandmother as well, she was saying that, like, you have such a good way with words and you you speak so well. Mm-hmm. Not a skill that I had thought I had. In, it wasn't a skill that I developed in secondary school anyways because I didn't, you know. You weren't doing presentations on a regular <laughs> no, basis. No, okay. no, no, no. And I didn't really think public speaking of anything. You know, mm. I didn't really like it. Um, but then I thought, you know, if nothing's going to change and nothing's going to happen, Alex can be that change. Mm-hmm. And he has a story. This is a really powerful story that can actually change the perceptions of people and how can I do that how can I what can I do to help that and take how something so negative and turn around and something so positive because there was a lot of media around it I could use that and mm. you know turn it around um, I suppose I called it Alex's Adventure for a specific reason because at the time my brother passed away um, I remember Coldplay brought out Adventure of a Lifetime which was a song and it's it's a, it's such a such a weird kind of early stupid story, but um, in the video you have Planet of the Apes, you know, yeah, the chimps are yeah. all dancing, and me and my brother loved the Planet of the Apes. We had this, we had this obsession with that film, and we still love it. And anytime I'd kind of be sad or think of him, that song would play in any shop. Like we were in Italy and it was playing. Anytime mm. it would just come on randomly. And then I was thinking of a name and I was like, what will I call it? What will I call it? Yeah. And then I thought of Alex's adventure because it was his adventure and I was just a storyteller in between. So I fought myself for about a week and every week I was like, I'll do it. I won't. I won't. I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. I don't. I won't. Hmm. And I went back and forth like that for about a week. And my best friend, I asked her and I was like, look, what do you think about this? Do you think, do you think people will care? Like, and she told me something that like completely changed my outlook on my life in this, uh, which was, she said, the worst thing that can happen is nothing. Sure. And at that point, that was the worst thing that could happen. I had already lost everything. And what was another kind of small little hiccup? If nothing was to come of it, of course. then nothing comes of it. But if something was to happen, then that could change everything. Yeah. So that's when I kind of went for it and decided to start Alex's Venture. How quickly after Alex's death did the idea come to fruition and you know, did you start the, the ball rolling on it? It was exactly two months after he passed away. Okay. Um, yeah, I just said, look, if I'm not going to do it now, I'm not going to do it at all. So I needed to just go in head first and that's what I did. I just started it with the concept, the idea and put it out there. And I did get a good response and I was going to say, you know, I was going to get everything in order before my first school visit in the following September. And 
that was it, really. I had said it and then I had to follow through with it and there was no kind of going back. And at, to this point, had you ever thought about setting up your own business? Was that ever anything in your own mind? Like Not a plan? in a million years. Right. Not a chance. I had a clue about business and I'm still learning now to this day. But looking back three and a half years ago, um, geez, I was, I was clueless. Mm. <laughs> I really was. And it was never something that I had imagined myself doing. Okay, but the fear this certainly didn't prevent you. And I, I guess maybe if you look back now, you probably think, Jesus, how did I manage to take that first step? But I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Taking the, the first step or so. It is taking the first step. And it, I suppose my brother was very, I live kind of how he lives now. And he lived in the moment. He didn't want to have any regrets or be wondering down the line what could have happened. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of thought, well, yeah, I don't want that either, you know. And if I don't do it and if it fails, well, it fails. But I tried. But it's worse to not try something and then have regrets down the line. Mm-hmm. Do you find that mantra or approach of kind of living in the moment, taking that step and, and going for it, does that get easier as you keep going? Or does it? Is it always the same, right, I'm just going to go for it, right, I'm just going to go for it? Is there a, a, like a muscle, like we talk about kind of, you know, developing a strength to it, but is it something like that, or do you find it still a big challenge every time? Um, I think no. The more you do it, the better it gets. So it's like a muscle. But if to start a business or to start anything, you have to be a risk taker, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I was, it was so. This was a complete three sixty, like for me. Right. And I was still petrified to do it, and I'm still petrified sometimes to take risks, but I'm willing to take them because I know payoff could be massive mm-hmm. and yeah it's something that you just you develop over time mm-hmm. and it just gets better and better cool <laughs> so, so maybe talk about the actual idea behind alex's venture i know you mentioned you were bringing it to schools but maybe just talk about what what is involved and you know mm-hmm. what the actual concept entailed i suppose the concept has evolved and pivoted so many times now you the definitely last... are going to business school using pivoting <laughs> things like that now yeah i know the key words um but it has and for it to develop it needs to it had to um because i went head first and i just went into schools and i just began sharing a story mm-hmm. um i wanted it to be different to all the other kind of um drug education that was out there at the moment which isn't a lot but Young people identify with other young people and they listen to other young people. And I wanted this to be real to them. I didn't want to be patronizing. I didn't want to be talking down to them. And one of the biggest things was I didn't want to lie to them. Mm-hmm. There was no point in me lying and saying things just to petrify them because that just doesn't work. They're not stupid. Um, I just wanted to show them the real effects of how, you know, all of our choices have consequences, no matter what we do in life, good and bad. And that was kind of the first kind of step. So I was kind of doing workshops all around Ireland for the first year. And then I thought, look, this is great and all that, but I'm one person. And if I was to start a business on just that, then I'd be traveling 24 hours a day, seven days a week Mm -hmm. for the whole year. And it's just not sustainable enough. So I began thinking about building a program because what came out of the workshops was always that they wanted to know more about drugs drugs all other aspects of drugs so i kind of started thinking well a program would actually work much better and we could talk about things that were outside of drugs because drugs is only a small part of this it's kind of more to do with our relationships with drugs Mm -hmm. and how young people see drugs and things like that so building their kind of skills with resilience and stuff will really help them and ways to say no and ways to be respectful and things so i did 
begin a four-week program, which I piloted in two schools in Cork City this year, earlier on this year. And they went fantastic, and they were great. But again, what came out of that learning was that, again, they still wanted to know a hell of a lot more. And they wanted to know different aspects. And there was about 30-something topics that came out of that learning. So again, I had to change the model. And it's kind of where it is now, where it's going more digital. Mm -hmm. And the offering is that because not every single community and area has the same drug problem, that schools will be able to basically build their own adventure Mm -hmm. where they can opt in and actually build their own package that's suited to them. Mm. And it'll all kind of be virtual and the teacher all has, she has to do is just turn it on. Okay. So it's like an a la carte menu that they select. Is it, I suppose maybe the journey, not not trying to think I know what it's about, but <laughs> are you saying the the student would go in and make choices along the way and it would bring them on a different path through the adventure? Or how so do, how do it would be kind of, it's a package deal. So there's four tiered packages. Mm-hmm. So it'll be lessons that are 20 minutes long. And so the school will be sponsored for whatever package they're sponsored. So let's say they're sponsored for the 15 lesson package. They'll have about 40 lessons to choose from. Right. So they can choose 15 of those lessons to build their own adventure. And they're interactive. There's games, there's learning, all this kind of stuff as well. And something exciting that we are looking at is also the kind of interactive storyline, which we're building in, uh, which we're building at the moment, where young people and students can actually choose the path of the story themselves mm. based on the decisions and the choices they make within that story. Okay. Um, which will show them how, how things can play out and how things can change really, really quickly, mm. depending on their choice. So they'll be able to learn in a kind of interactive way because to them, everything that's interactive is really important. They're in a digital age and everything they do is nearly online at this stage. Mm. So it's just kind of keeping up with that. And also to make it easy for teachers because a lot of teachers don't actually know a lot about drugs themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard. And one of the things that they're always fearful of is if a student was to ask me something and I didn't know about it, Mm. what would I do? Mm. And I'd always say, you know, you can always come back to them, but they always just feel that, you know, they need to know it right there and then. Yeah. And drugs is a really big, big space. So you might not know everything about that. So by kind of creating this virtual tutor, which should be myself, it eliminates that scary factor for them and they just kind of act as a facilitator throughout this whole program. Mm. And I guess, is it about as well trying to make it okay for the student to actually talk to their parents or a teacher or somebody about the impact drugs could have on them? Because I would imagine when I was in school, whenever 20 plus years ago, that wasn't something you know you would ever kind of be willing to confide in a teacher or a parent or anything like that is it just changing the mindset it is it's changing in their mindset and it's kind of so it's looking at it in a lot of different spectrums um it's trying to destigmatize that whole thing about being a habitual drug user and that it's only habitual drug users that use drugs and opening their mind to other certain types of drugs because i suppose with young demographic now what we're seeing is that they're using things like Xanaxes, prescription drugs and um, steroids mm. because the lads want to get big really quickly sure. and steroids are something that they'll use yeah and i suppose you know kind of athletes and all that kind of make it seem kind of almost okay and mm. that it's harmless and you have rappers and music and all this culture talking about Xanaxes and how they use them to like numb their feelings but it's more about actually helping them develop coping skills that are 
really good and normal because adolescence to them is it's such a really it's a horrible time for all of us like we've all gone through it and we're crying over spilled milk most of the time yeah. and your emotions are everywhere so instead of you know turning to xanax when your boyfriend breaks up with you you need to develop skills that you can just you know cope with it it's normal it's okay and it's letting them know that because at they don't really have that at present. They mm. don't really develop that anymore, especially with the digital age and social media and all the other external influences that they have in life at the moment. It's about showing them that it's okay. What you're going through is okay. It's that lessons. You don't mm. have to turn to something else mm. like a pill. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the four-tier package, I think, from just reading off the, off the website and doing some research. There was an element that stood out as a part of it, like about who am I, sort of. Is there is there is that, that sort of question that the students kind of have to almost grapple with? Is it figuring out like what type of person they are, a bit about their identity? Does that come into it? It does, because it's it's all part of adolescence. So like, while the program is a drug education program and we talk about drugs, we talk about all external factors as well that can contribute to our choices. So peer pressure, you know, and they're going through a time where they are finding out who they are. I mean... I think we all are, even to this day, like mm-hmm. it just it doesn't come overnight, you know, to sure. wake up and know who we are. Yeah. Um, but it's so much more difficult for them at that stage. Whereas when I was growing up, I didn't have social media. So I was lucky in that respect where things weren't captured and, mm-hmm. you know, people just found out your story, whatever. Everyone laughed about it for a week and everybody got over it. They don't have that now. But it, it is about just being, trying to become comfortable in your own in your own skin and just building your self-esteem slightly so that you can stand your ground should you not want to participate in something. Because a lot of the time with drug use, be it an athlete or someone that is a habitual drug user, it's a, it's about our relationships with drugs and it's about wanting to be part of something. Mm. So if all your friends are doing it, you don't want to be that excluded person. You don't want to be the outsider. So while you might know it's wrong, you'll still try and do it just because you want to be included. Mm-hmm. Very so, good. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the point where you realized after the first kind of pivot that you can't do all this on your own. And just interested in the process you went through for, for feedback on that and, and how you how you worked through that. Because I think in any business, when somebody maybe steps out, they think they have the best idea in the world. They want to cling on to that until it becomes this is going to work sort of thing. And it's very hard to let go thinking, okay, maybe I was wrong here. I need to listen to other people. Maybe how, how did that work for you? And how do you deal with that? Um, initially, I think I love pivoting now. Like I, if I'm pivoting, then I'm like, okay, I'm doing something right because I understand it now. But initially it is hard because this is your baby almost. It's like your child. And all of a sudden someone's like, well, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you don't know you don't know what I've been through you don't know this that, the other. Almost, yeah you yeah. are almost yeah. offended but you take you have to be open minded as well and you have to kind of see that okay like you I I love critical feedback like or feedback in any way but if someone's criticizing what I'm doing brilliant because I can learn from that very easily and I can see okay that person has a point maybe it's not a full point but I'll take it on board and I'll go back to the drawing board see what can I change and what do they mean and ask them about it because mm. I suppose yeah it is very hard to pivot initially or you're afraid because if you were wrong you know I know failure is also is such a thing that like you took this risk and everybody was on board with you and then all of a sudden oh no Jesus is not working yeah but that's not failure like you're learning from it and you have to pivot to have a successful business because that's just how it works mm. um 
yeah, it was difficult. And the very like the first year, Jesus, even now, it's still difficult. Mm. Like there are days where you you just have you just want to walk away. Yeah, move to the other side of the world and start again. <laughs> mm. Interesting on the the feedback piece. Then, and do you have, have you developed? A process, and you're you're doing um, the ignite program at the yeah. moment still as well. So I presume you're learning a lot through that. But are you developing not just coping mechanisms with the kind of feedback, but how, how do you how do you analyze it objectively and then kind of take some of it on board? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just interested in in a, any tool or I approach. For me, initially, it was kind of um, I got the feedback. And I kind of went away and I was kind of you know, like sad about it and I didn't know how to cope with it perfectly or well. Um, but then I started studying substance use in UCC. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, it was advised that we began psychotherapy. And I was completely adamant against it. I was like, no, this is stupid. But you get your own, you, you do one-to-one. You one-to-one yeah, with, yeah, for yeah. Your, on your own time sure. outside of this. Okay. And I did. I went ahead and kind of the first few sessions, I remember just thinking, oh, he, he's, he, I'm just going to make this very difficult for him now. And he's not going to know me and he's not going to, you know, he's, I'm going to see how, well, how good he is. <laughs> I'm going to You're going to go in with a bag <laughs> yeah. over your head and see if he can <laughs> exactly. cold read you. Yeah, yeah. But I did it for about a year and it actually helped me a huge deal. Mm. Um, the coping mechanisms that I use is I usually just, I would take the criticism and don't the worst thing you can do is respond instantly mm. don't to an email to a phone call to anything just take it and go away for a while and think it through mm-hmm. and then the next day respond because people do that too quickly and then in the heat of the moment you're not thinking clearly you're not processing yeah. just sit with it think about it um, my coping mechanism is writing I love writing and I love writing about all sorts of feelings and experiences that yeah. I don't share with everybody on sure. a daily basis so to me, it's definitely just like taking it and actually like thinking about it, not just saying, oh, yeah, I'll take that on board and just going off and doing your own thing mm-hmm. anyways, but actually just understanding and even ask a person, like, why would you say something like that? Because mm. they'll have a reason and they'll give you something back and mm-hmm. then you'll understand the whole process of their thought process as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would be my biggest kind of thing, just take it and sit with it sit on it yeah wait yeah I, I touch on impulse control a lot like and I think you've just explained how you exercise impulse control because a lot of the time the response is like it's a it's a personal attack you, yeah. f- you feel and uh, it's um, it's a sign of maturity I suppose that that you can kind of let it sit and your subconscious can work it out and the next day it can in the shower or whenever you're doing something it'll pop out to say oh actually yeah, that, I, I see see where that comes from you know so it probably over time maybe that happens faster but yeah. at least it's happening and you're not kind of throwing the metaphorical toys out of the pram you know uh, <laughs> so, so that's that's good you mentioned that the the study you're doing as well mm-hmm. so you're, you're kind of doing the 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 business and kind of upskilling as well in in the the Psych, is it what, what's this? Substance abuse and addiction. Substance abuse, yeah. yeah. Um, I really just kind of wanted to upskill myself and really get an understanding into the whole addiction scene and the whole thing about drugs and substance abuses. Because while I know things from personal experience, I also want an academic ex- learning as well from it. So I completed first year, so I have a certificate, but I'm going to go back and finish my second year after the Ignite program. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just doing everything all at once was just way too much. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and if it's one thing I've learned, it's self-care is yeah. important also. Yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to just completing that as well. And it's been it's been a fantastic and eye-opening kind of course into just addiction and how we perceive it. Mm. Yeah. No, I read a book a book not so long ago um, around, the, it's called The Power of Habits by a guy called Charles Duhigg and it talks about addiction and habits and cravings and how you can actually break those down and, and kind of re- replace them, replace the bad habits with good habits. Is there anything that you took away from that so far that helps the business in, in how you approach, you know, the actual material, the content? Definitely. It's definitely the understanding of kind of the thought processes, even as something as simple as the thought processes of, because I work with a couple of doctors in the psychology department in UCC, and they specialize in adolescent behavior, so how young people make their decisions and what it's based on. So even understanding things like, because boys, their front, the front part of their brain matures a little bit slower than girls, they're more impulsive. Mm-hmm. So they make a choice really, really quickly, as opposed to girls might just a little bit think about it a little bit, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's taking about, it's about addictions. Well, how we talk, the language that we use when we talk about people who are addicted is really important as well because like language is very hurtful and it can be you know um so it's just teaching young people about that as well that what you say has an impact and just being mindful of that um but yeah it's just a lot of the stuff that i've learned through that course has definitely helped me shape the way the lessons are the way the courses are and the way the teaching evolves Mm. as you pivoted you expanded the team i suppose who's involved uh, from just you as a, a one lady band uh, yeah. to a broader group so how, how did you go about that i suppose it was just through a lot of coffee meetings okay. <laughs> they're always the best but um i suppose i identified all the areas that i was lacking in because mm-hmm. you have to because you can't be everything initially you are you're absolutely everything to the business but you do need help external help from other people as well so I just identified in places that I wasn't as strong as I could have been and I met people through Ignite especially in the last year but even before that through people that have connected with me just to I met them and just got a feel to see were they interested even in this you Mm. know um and also what could they offer because mm. you could be interested, but you might not be offering anything at all to me. And then you're just sitting there and you're being very useless. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of give and take relationship. Mm. But um, you'd be surprised about how many people actually want to help somebody, especially other entrepreneurs who have been in that space, who understand the journey. Um, they're very good. But yeah, a lot of coffee meetings. <laughs> mm. And it's people not just in Cork. It's, it's all over the country or it's yeah. spread everywhere. Yeah, there's a few people that are kind of in Dublin and stuff. I've got great support from SEI, Social Entrepreneurs Network, um, as well, because I did their academy last year in Galway. Um, But most of them are in Cork because I like to meet with them on a regular basis. But um, there are people that aren't all in Cork that I still Skype and things like that as well, of course. Mm, Very good. The Ignite program, maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the things that came out of that for you so far. It's something I'm very interested in. I know a few people that have kind of gone through it, but... um, just what it's brought to you, what it, what it, uh, extra tools it might have given you. Oh, um, I think the Ignite program was my 
like the biggest success for me anyways because it took me out of the mindset of being in my business and now working on my business which is a real big difference and especially because I think I don't think Eamon had taken on any other social entrepreneurship enterprise even mm-hmm. until I was the first really and I think it was kind of like almost a gamble for us both because usually it's like a commercial business that they take on but in the last kind of almost 12 months I've been able to blend the commercial side because it's all well and true wanting to save the world and changing the world but at the end of the day you still have bills to pay you still have want to hire staff you still got to make money um, to make it sustainable to make that impact and make that change and it's actually learning that side of the business that has helped me in the last 12 months massively because I hadn't a clue like I just wanted to go out there and save the world mm-hmm. but to be able to learn and get the tools to be able to actually save the world and do it sustainably is key so mm-hmm. that's exactly what Ignite did for me and it's fantastic to see that there's other social entrepreneurs now coming in through the door and it's something that like we need as social ent- entrepreneurs and we're still kind of like an not an understood kind of space right sometimes you meet people who are really commercial and then they're like what do you do like are you charity or Mm, mm. what are you and i think there's also a lot of like people are afraid to be a business because if you're doing something social you have to be doing it for free Mm -hmm. that's kind of attitude and then if you're doing it for business well you're not really doing it for anything are you are you just doing it for money but i always go back to like the um, example of the body shop which is a social enterprise you know they make a lot of money but they do give a lot of their profits to the rainforest and that's exactly what I am a business a for profit business with a social impact at its core Hmm. I think definitely people would absolutely forget that the body shop was and is about you know about that I remember that when when it came out in probably the 80s or so probably started or even earlier Um, during the few years so far that you've been doing this what's the biggest mistake you've made that that you've learned the most from or or what just jumps up for you there um taking care of myself okay it's a forever learning curve um sometimes i just take on too much and the burnout is just it's always so you crash really hard Mm. it takes a while to come back like even mentally not even physically but sometimes it gets to that physical stage where you're actually physically yourself you're sick you're unwell um definitely pacing myself and just kind of being more strategic about things and definitely being open-minded because you just can't have tunnel vision Mm. not at all because you have to take on board other people's perspectives and ideas and yeah open-mindedness is key for me anyways Mm. um key for just growing a business and keeping that open mind Mm -hmm. and just even on the part you mentioned about self-care is there any things specifically you do to keep that balance do you have to like get your mum to just like lock you in a room for 24 hours to, to recharge or oh, I think it's so hard to self-care though when you're so well, like when you're an entrepreneur at all because like when you're trying to well, let's say you're like okay I'm Sunday's off and I'm gonna do nothing on Sunday and even though you're doing nothing you're still thinking about all the things that you need to do tomorrow mm-hmm, or the things mm-hmm. that you need to do next week yeah uh so it's really hard to switch off your brain completely um but I just I do take one day off completely off in the week where I do nothing a digital detox sort of day, is it? I watch Netflix. It's not really digital okay, detox. Right. I'm still in the digital world. Um, but I also like to read. And that takes me out of a different space. 
Um, also, I like I work a part time job too. So when I am working that job, it takes me out of it completely, sure. which is actually nice. Probably enjoy I'm not it thinking about, massively. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not thinking about actually the business at the time. So mm. reading, just a bit of time to me as well. Okay, very, very good. Is there a standout moment you've had so far in the the journey, the your own part of this adventure that uh, comes to mind? I know you, you won a humanitarian award, I believe, as well. That that might have been something. Yeah, that was, that was bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really really cool to actually win that. I just I didn't even I just got like a nomination. Someone just messaged me. They're like, "Oh, you were nominated for this award," and I was yeah. like, "What?" <laughs> um, but yeah, I won that last year, 2018. Yeah. Um, there was one standout moment though, and this was the moment that like I knew I was doing something right, and it was recent enough actually. Um. My very first school that I went to give that talk, um, my very first workshop was in Fermoy, and it was an all-boys school. And I'll never forget it, because I just thought they were going to absolutely just, oh, I don't know, tear me apart, because they were all boys as What well. age were they, would it have been? They would have been in third year at the time. Okay, like 13, 14, 15 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. those kind of boys that are messers at that right. stage. And I came in, and I gave the workshop, and I talked to them. Fantastic. And then I left, and... I was recently um, celebrating some sort of a win in a way. It was a small one, but it was a win. <laughs> Celebrate <laughs> all the wins. <laughs> That's it. And uh, I was walking through town and I was walking up College Road. I was walking by UCC and I met this guy at the bottom of the road. And mm. he said, oh, he just said, hello, how are you? And I was like, oh, hi. Just kept walking. He, I'd say he was no more than 19 years of age, I'd say. Definitely first year of college. And he kind of caught up with me. As, and we kind of walked. There was nobody on the road. It was late enough at night. Right. And he just asked me, um, what do you do? And I just said, oh, look, I work in the substance use, drug and alcohol space. And then he turned around to me and he said, I remember there was this one time there was this girl and she came to my school. It was about three years ago. And she told me the story about her brother and how his choices had led to him dying. And... I never forgot that story and it just always stayed with me and I always think about that time mm. that she came in and that's kind of when I was like oh my god like he doesn't realize that I am me and yeah. I am the girl that came to his school and this is what he says when I'm not like when I'm not in the room mm. like this is what he talks about to somebody he doesn't even know what mm. he doesn't think he knows and that kind of was just like such a wow moment. I was mm. like, he took that on board three years ago and yeah. he still talks about it to strangers. Sure. That was kind of the power of the impact. And then when I told him who I was, he was just... <laughs> Blew him away then. Blew him away. He was just, he couldn't believe it. Uh, he gave me a hug and everything and he was just mm. so thankful. But it was amazing to see him progress so far and now he's mm. in college and he still remembers that. Yeah. So I think that was just, it was like a... I don't know, it was just so surreal. <laughs> it's brilliant though, because it, it's those little stories that have the most impact on, I know, n not a similar comparison, but if somebody randomly mentions that they listened to an episode that I put out a yeah. year ago, you just don't know who's picking up on certain stuff at any time. You're talking to hundreds of people, but it's the onesie, twosies that come back randomly that I suppose gives you that continued drive to, to keep going, you know? Yeah, that's that's it. It mm. was just to know that it was always the mission to have just change one more person's life and one person's you know mind about it. 
and I've achieved that. So mm. anything above that is just another massive win. Very cool. Nice. Just a couple of quick ones before we, uh, yeah, before we, we, we wrap up. Through the influencers and mm, I suppose med- um, not meditation that's on my mind at the moment um, <laughs> the uh, mentors you've had is there any one that stands out maybe a piece of advice that you're being given that really has stood for you that keeps coming up I think I don't know I've had so many mentors and so many people that have given me so much great advice I think just the one that my best friend had told me. That was always the one. And that's the one that I share with everyone too, that the worst thing that can happen is nothing. Because we always worry about things like, you know, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? A lot of us always worry about what other people think as well. Mm. But, like, the worst thing at that point in my life was nothing. That was literally the worst thing that could have happened. And she was right, and it is. So I always encourage people to, like, if you have an idea, take that risk just just to see. And if nothing happens, so be it, you know. But if something does happen, it can really change your life, everybody else's life, and just evolve into something amazing. Mm-hmm. Very good. And I, I presume that would be similar advice you would give to potential wannabe entrepreneurs out there if they're... Definitely, you know. but be strategic and... You have to be open to criticism. You can't know it all initially. You just can't. It's impossible. I'm still learning. I'm, I've got another couple of years, light years ahead of where I could be. But if you're learning from your mistakes, if you're learning every day, then you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you knew one thing before you started out on the, the journey of being you know, an entrepreneur that would have made a big impact, what might that be? Any one thing stand out? What would that one thing? Jesus, a lot of things. <laughs> I suppose you know how hard it is, but you don't really ever know how really hard it can be. Mm. Um, have a co-founder. Right. Having a co-founder would be fantastic. To have that other person that's with you and you can bounce things off of, brilliant. A lot of people don't, like I don't have one. Mm-hmm. But I'm really jealous of people who are co-founders because I'm like, oh... Like yeah, you, you, there two, there's two of you, and you can both kind of pick each other up when one is down, and vice versa. Mm. So if you can get a co-founder, fab. But if you can't, then just surround yourself with the people that can lift you up when you're down. Mm. And the network in Cork is is very supportive for a lot of that. I'd imagine unbelievable. Like two degrees of separation is so true in Cork. Like. Mm. There's someone that, like, I always say, you know, when you're networking or something like that, and if you're meeting people who you are looking to be mentors, and if, for instance, they can't help you, they'll find three other people that will. And then those three people find three more people. And Mm -hmm. that's how you build your network. So don't be afraid of having an ask as well when you do meet people so Mm -hmm. that they know, you know, okay, we're not just here for a chat and a coffee, like. Sure. And I'm telling you, people in Cork are just so accommodating and just so nice and so friendly that they will help you and if they can't they'll know someone that will mm-hmm. cool so looking forward where does the adventure go next what's the the, the big plans how far are you looking forward with it um at the moment i'm kind of looking towards the next five years of the adventure um but it's just i suppose we're looking at developing this new interactive story that's going to be exciting and fun looking at really digitalizing this kind of stuff and kind of being the first in the market. And then I suppose we'll, 
will expand our reach to outside of Ireland too. Hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll get there. Yeah, seems like you have the, the, the passion to do it. The, the purpose is so clear, you know, and like anything, a lot of people that I've talked to and self-included, whatever you're doing, as long as you can trace it back to a real purpose that you can connect to that's tied to your values the why absolutely it's you know it makes it a hell of a lot easier than if you're just doing it for you know potential windfalls and you know that 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 aren't forthcoming you lose the the motivation very quickly yeah definitely yeah and the fact that it's digital or going that way and it's online and it's not you know it's not just specifically ireland tailored it it has a huge opportunity, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm hoping so anyways. Um, it's just getting getting that one hook, getting mm-hmm. one buy-in from somebody, and I think after that, it'll just kind of blow up. It's just hoping to keep up with it then. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you'll definitely need your uh, downtime to yeah. keep up with it there. Um, brilliant. Maybe just for people that are listening that aren't necessarily from Ireland, people in the US and all over that listen, so how they could maybe check it out, learn a bit more about about you, how they can uh, get in touch. Oh yeah, loads of information on um, the website, which is www.alexisadventure.ie and if you're on Facebook, you can find us at Alex's Adventure of a Lifetime and we have Twitter, Instagram, it's all Alex's Adventure, so I'm more than happy to chat to people all the time and I'm always there. (laughs) Brilliant. Great to hear your story and the story of Alex's adventure. Um, Really enjoyed listening to it. Thanks so much for coming on, Nicole. Looking forward to sharing this. Thanks a million, Rob. Thanks for having me. Cool. So this is the outro of the podcast, guys. You got to the end and that is great. Please hang in here for another couple of minutes. I know most people won't, but maybe there's something here of interest. So check this out. First off, thanks so much for listening to this one, as well as maybe the hundred or so that's gone before it. Why not check them out if you haven't already? There's lots of good stuff in there. The whole podcasting journey for me has been a huge learning and I'm trying to help you guys learn and improve as well. So much has changed over the last few years since I started it. I've really realized lots of the goals that I put out there and then realized so many unexpected benefits as well. And I think anytime you take on action towards a goal, you're going to pick up lots of things that you didn't expect along the way and hopefully they're good things. In this particular episode, was there any one or two things that jumped out? Maybe you could take a pen and paper out right now because this is something that you might think of during the episode but never do. Do it now. Take it out. Write down a goal that you're going to set yourself as a result of something you learned from this episode. Put a plan in place and then work towards it. Applying yourself deliberately over time. Take ownership. Build a habit. Improve get 1% better, share accountability with somebody you know in a buddy system and learn and grow and improve. That's what it's all about. That's my hopefully inspirational piece done. Other areas to note, check out the website robofthegreen.ie. You can consume everything there for free. There is obviously the podcast, there's video, one minute Monday clips, there's articles, uh, not enough, but I'd like to put more there. If you're interested in putting one there, let me know. And there's a Get Better App page, which I'm starting to add new content to over time. There's a feedback page if you want to email me, rob at robofthegreen.ie instead. But it's all about trying to engage you and get you to a place of improvement. So I'm open to feedback. As I said, ways you can help me is by following me on the socials at robofthegreen.ie is the website or at robofthegreen on all the social platforms. Subscribe to the podcast on any of the 
apps that you might listen to it on talk about it tell a friend about it tell your family members about it share some of the ideas not only to your friends but to me is there anything i can improve upon sign up to the newsletter that's there as well i'm experimenting again with a group called slack rob of the green on slack this is really for a shared accountability environment and sharing ideas you can sign up to that on the website as well all of this is obviously all free but there is also an option where you could subscribe to my patreon site and make a small donation for the content that we do it's there it's totally up to you everything that is coming in through that or could come in through that will go into making the podcast better so to close i am always trying to improve and get better change is difficult i know that but it's all about taking the first step learning something applying yourself moving forward you can do this i've been able to improve pushing myself outside the comfort zone learning and i think if i can do it so can you don't overreach don't set yourself unrealistic goals one percent at a time is enough but it's all about starting and that will bring you on your pursuit of betterness to a great place. Thanks for sticking to the very end. Talk to you next time and take care. Good luck.